Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days backdated to February 20th, 2008, because I actually filed on the evening of February 21st. Oh, I'm Steve Mursky, by the way. If you've been breathlessly waiting for this week's podcast, I apologize. I was out of town at a couple of conferences, and this week's episode features some highlights from one of them, and that's the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, which took place last week and the beginning of this current week in Boston. The other conference was Inside Baseball. It was about the future of science journalism, which is going to be good, thankfully. So this week on the podcast, we'll hear from Nobel laureate David Baltimore about HIV research. We also have an interview with the director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Charles Elashi, and in a real coup... We actually managed to get Scientific American editor Mark Fischetti to come on board, make an appearance. First up, David Baltimore. He's the president of the AAAS and professor of biology at Caltech. He shared the 1975 Nobel Prize for the discovery of reverse transcriptase. I attended his presidential address to the conference, and he spent a few minutes of about an hour reviewing the effort to create an HIV vaccine. Here's what he said. Having mentioned AIDS, I want to comment on how we can ever expect to reverse the spread of this scourge. The background is, I'm sure, well known to most of you. There is no AIDS vaccine. There is no hopeful candidate AIDS vaccine. HIV, the cause of AIDS, has evolved to be virtually impossible to attack by antibody. And without antibody sensitivity, it's pretty well uncontrollable by the immune system. This is a huge challenge because to control HIV immunologically, the scientific community has to beat out nature, has to do something that nature, with its advantage of four billion years of evolution, has not been able to do. Our lack of success may be understandable, but it's not acceptable. Thus, calling an AIDS vaccine a grand challenge is not hyperbole. You might ask, why is HIV different from most other viruses? Why can vaccines control so many viruses, but not HIV? The answer is buried in the evolution of the virus. HIV managed to evolve to be immunologically protected. Its code is structurally refractory to antibody inactivation, and host cellular immune system responses don't produce durable control. Virtually no other virus has combined these two modes of immune avoidance. If one virus can do it, why not others? Why aren't all the viruses that are out there like HIV? And the answer, I think, is that HIV has chosen a lifestyle different from that of all other viruses. Most viruses don't avoid immune attack, and they don't really need to. They carry out a generation of their lives, and then they get passed on to a new host, within the week that occurs between the encounter of the immune system with a new virus and its establishment of an immune reaction to that virus. But HIV, by avoiding immune attack, can establish a chronic infection that the body is unable to eliminate. Interestingly, HIV evolved in chimpanzees. And for unknown reasons, it does not cause disease in chimps. Thus, this lifestyle, based on immune avoidance, is not much of a liability in its natural host. But when HIV jumped to humans, it found a host where it caused a serious degenerative disease. 
Thus, we are the victims of a diabolical circumstance. HIV, a benign virus of chimpanzees, came into our lives and produced a disaster. Against that background, the vaccine community has tried its best. It initially made an attempt to control the virus through antibodies, but found that the virus was quite solidly protected against that mode of attack. Then it switched to trying the other arm of immune protection, the cellular immune system. That's never actually been mobilized to protect against a virus. And sure enough, a full-scale clinical trial of the first such candidate vaccine gave no protection. The community is still trying this route of attack because it is one of the few natural hopes we have. Some are also still trying the antibody route because it's been so successful against a host of other viruses. But the community is depressed because we see no hopeful route to success. I should add that this depression is not halting development activities. Knowing how crucial it is to get a vaccine, the community of vaccine developers are moving ahead, even recognizing the long odds against success. I would point out that none of this work could have been done anywhere but in the most technologically advanced countries. It involves the most sophisticated concepts and techniques of modern science, and even so hasn't worked. Our only hope may lie in inventing new ways of providing antiviral protection. And under the aegis of the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, we are attempting that. I don't want to get too technical, but we're trying to combine gene therapy, immunologic therapy, and stem cell therapy to stimulate an immunologic attack on HIV through new roots. Uh, this is truly a grand challenge, uh, and uh, we hope uh, that we can make some progress. Uh, at least we'll give it a try. You can hear the entirety of Baltimore's talk with some very pungent political commentary near the end. It's up at the AAAS website, AAAS.org. That's A-A-A-S.org. The AAAS conference is a, is a real beehive. It's pretty crazy there. Thousands of scientists and hundreds of reporters are all running around to dozens of lectures going on at the same time. So I was able to grab a few minutes with Charles Alashi, the director of the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, as we rode an escalator and walked through corridors going from one talk to another one. Dr. Alashi, thanks for talking to me. It's my pleasure. People have all heard of, of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. What's the actual role of the JPL today? Okay, uh, JPL is one of the 10 NASA centers, and our focus is uh, mostly on planetary exploration, and we do some astrophysics and Earth science, all using robotic spacecrafts. Right. This is completely unmanned. The JPL doesn't that do anything. That is correct. Manning. That is correct. That's our uh, expertise. What are some of the really exciting, other than the Mars rovers that we've done a lot with, <laughs> what are some of the exciting missions that are currently going on, and what's envisioned for the next few years? Yeah, we, we have a whole spectrum of missions. Let me give you a couple of examples. One, in the case of Mars, we have a spacecraft heading to Mars, which will land close to the North Pole on April 25th, and that will be looking, actually trenching in the surface and measuring the composition of the surface. Uh, we have uh, spacecraft that uh, we are uh, planning now to go to Europa and Titan, 
and look for uh, potential, uh, you know, habitable environment. Uh, not necessarily human living there, but uh, sure, but really microbes. understand the ocean microbes and so on. Uh, some of the particularly exciting missions is to look at the neighboring few thousand stars and see if there are planets around them. In particular, we're interested to see are there planets similar to our planets. So we'll be able to take what we call the family portraits of the planetary systems. And then we have a number of missions which are we are planning for Earth studies. Uh, to allow us to get a better understanding of global change in the atmosphere or the surface or the oceans and hopefully help policymakers in making decisions about the future of our planet. Let's talk about that a little bit, the uh, the relationship between the the work that people usually consider to be astronomical work and earth science uh, and environmental science. Yeah, I, I think we, we those things, there is a lot of complementarity between thing because we develop techniques for doing astronomical or planetary studies and by understanding better how other planets evolve and the technologies that we use to observe other planets we can apply it to our own planet so in the case of uh, for instance us at JPL most of our past experience was in planetary exploration but now we spend almost uh, one quarter of our activities earth related and we are developing we are using the same techniques that we studied Venus and Mars we are applying them to earth Tell me just a little bit, how did you get involved in this whole field? <laughs> well, since I was a kid, I used to sit down and watch the stars and get always fascinated by the beauty of the sky. And somehow I liked science, and by pure chance, I ended going to Caltech in California. And it turned out that JPL was part of Caltech, and uh, somehow You've I went to work since? while I was a student, you know, and I thought I'd work for a year, and here, 35 years later, I'm still there and having great fun. Why do you think, I mean... Every little kid loves looking at the stars or loves looking at dinosaurs, but very few of them become paleontologists or the director of the JPL. <laughs> Why do you think that you did? Well, I, th I think uh, you really have, uh, uh, again, it, it depends what, what you love doing in, in your life. Uh, I say every discipline uh, is exciting. Uh, if you are an artist, if you are a philosopher, if you are an engineer, if you are a lawyer, it all has its own fun. The key thing is what do you enjoy doing in life? And for me, it turned out, you know, doing exploration uh, is something I enjoy. I look forward every day to go to work, and and I enjoy doing that. <laughs> that, was, that was a little noisy, but it's just you, you really just followed what you love to do until it uh, brought you where you are. Yeah, that's what I tell everybody is uh, just do the things you love, you know, and uh, you will do very well at them. And, and get good at them. That's right. I mean, you have to do hard work. But you have to love the things you are doing, and there is a role for everybody. It's important to be technologically knowledgeable because we are in a very advanced technological society. But you don't have to be a scientist and engineer uh, because we need talent across the board. Thank you very much for speaking to me, especially under these conditions. I appreciate it. <laughs> sure, you are welcome. We'll have a lot more on the Mars rovers within the next few weeks. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory website is www.jpl.nasa.gov. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, researchers have found the fossil of a bat species that was, for all intents, deaf. Story two, another fossil story. Fossil remains of what may be the smallest frog that ever lived. It would have been about the size of a grain of rice. Story three, a man following the instructions from his onboard GPS unit drove his car onto railroad tracks 
where it was obliterated by a train, and story four, altruism and war probably had to evolve together for either to exist. We'll be back with the answer, but first, as I said, there are dozens of lectures happening simultaneously at the AAAS conference. So when I saw that Siam editor Mark Fischetti was there on Friday, I figured we could get more bang for the buck if I got a brief summary from him about the sessions he had attended. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Steve. I'm doing well. You must be pretty beat. You spent a full day at sessions here at the AAAS meeting. Actually, I learned quite a lot today. Um, I I came in expecting to hear uh, mostly discussions about what's going wrong and how things are getting worse in the environment because that seems to be a major focus here. And I did hear plenty of that and some surprising things. Uh, but there was good news at the end of the day. What was it? Well, uh, there seems to be real hope amongst people who really study what's going on in, in Congress, that the legislature is actually taking climate change seriously enough that there, there, there are quite a number of bills proposed that, uh, to help mitigate uh, consequences and try to keep down um, the amount of greenhouse gases and other pollutants that are being emitted. Uh, that's quite a change. They even sort of admitted that's quite a change. And I wasn't aware myself of how much legislation is actually out there that could be considered. And the other, the other note of hope was that um, uh, the, the outgoing head of AAAS was in, in this session on legislative uh, initiatives. And uh, it's, it's shaping up now that the, the four biggest uh, emitters in the world are U.S. first, China second, but by next year, China will rival the U.S. Um, uh, Brazil, or I'm sorry, India fifth, but they will soon be third, and Brazil fourth. Brazil, really? Yeah. Because we hear so many things about Brazil and their, uh, their automobiles that run on sugarcane. Right, right. Uh, the, the first three countries, the great contributions are from burning fossil fuels. However, Brazil, the, the massive contribution comes from deforestation, burning down the forest. You know, you have a tree's worth of carbon going up in the atmosphere, you know, times millions. So, um, but the good news part was that, um, uh, the head of AAAS was at the Bali discussions a few weeks ago, and the very high elected officials from all of those countries were there, and all of them seemed to be taking seriously their responsibility to uh, for their country to cut emissions. And there's actually been um, the the, um, the president of Brazil and um, high legislators from India and China all said they are starting. Uh, government initiatives to reduce emissions. Now, that's not just not happened before. So that's actually pretty encouraging. Right. The fact that people are, are, are talking about it at that level right. is a new thing. Talking and, and committing, saying, you know, we just, not that we recognize the problem, we are going to have legislation. And, you know, in these sorts of countries, when the head of the country or a high up person says, we're going to have initiatives, they're going to have initiatives. <laughs> it's a directive, essentially. So that's, that's great. So what other uh, sessions did you attend today? I started this morning on a session on ocean acidification, which um, was very sort of smartly titled, subtitled, The Other Carbon Dioxide Problem. All the talk about carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, but roughly half of the carbon that's emitted into the atmosphere is actually sunk into the ocean, if you want to think of it that way. The ocean absorbs, I didn't know that either, roughly half of all the emissions currently absorbed by the oceans. Well, what happens is by absorbing that much carbon dioxide, the ocean chemistry changes gradually, and the pH of the ocean is starting to lower slightly. But it only takes 
a couple tenths of a percent drop in pH to significantly alter the entire uh, animal uh, chain in the ocean, if you want to think of it that way. And and the flora, the plants as well, I would right. assume. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, it, the corals, corals around the world are already starting to bleach. Right. The numbers are roughly 8.2 has been the geological pH of the oceans. 8.2 is the pH. Yeah, right. And it's roughly uh, 8.1 now, and the models are showing by 2050 or 2100, it could be down to 7.8. Wow. Right. I mean, when you consider the volume of water you're talking about, to change the pH by even a tenth of a point is really unbelievable to me. Right. It's significant, and that's all it takes to really change the entire food chain, essentially. Um, and and the, the most interesting thing I learned was, you know, you hear about coral, you hear about fish, but all the microorganisms in the water, there's a migration that happens on a daily basis. There's this enormous density of microorganisms that at nighttime are down in the deeper water. They migrate up to the surface during the daytime um, to feed and uh, for better respiration, and then they sort of sink down again at night. Better and, respiration because there's more oxygen dissolved. Yeah, more oxygen, in the water right, for oxygen. Surface. And they sort of have this cycle where, in, you know, they need to essentially oxygenate once a day, roughly. I and mean, these are generalities, but I had never thought of it, but you can visualize this heavy strata of microorganisms kind of floating up towards the surface and then sinking down at night. So this one tenth or two tenths change in pH radically changes their metabolism, mm. their ability to um, metabolize oxygen, which essentially uh, would either force them lower and lower or just wipe them out. And if that happens, then, you know, the, the entire ocean's life cycle is really not sustainable. Wow. Uh, so that was, uh, that was your first session. Yeah. How, many, how many sessions did you attend? Uh, five or six, actually. What, what were some of the other highlights of your day? Another interesting highlight what had to do with climate economics. This gets to be a, a, t- a tough subject, but the basic bottom line is, uh, you can propose all you want about what to do with the environment, but on a realistic level, it's got to make some sort of economic sense. Meaning, uh, if you're going to spend tons of money, you have to have some sort of assurance that it's going to be worth it. And that's where economists get into play. And there's, there's been a lot, uh, talked about in the last year or even two about what economic models to use to inform policy as to when, uh, certain investments, quote, make sense or not. When I, I was just in a session myself on communicating science to the public and one of the, uh, presenters uh, made reference to something I had never heard about before, but it's pretty funny. He was talking about how President Truman wished he could find a one-handed economist. Right, right. <laughs> right. Well, he wouldn't have found one here either, I'm sorry to say. Well, there was one good piece. Um, uh, I, I won't use names pro or, or against on anybody in the panel, but there was one economist in the panel who, who um, was trying and with some success to kind of convey the bottom line in English and and he made one interesting point. Um, the bottom line of the economic models, when you understand them, uh, is that if you look out to 2050, much less 2100, the models all say you really can't justify doing anything on a major scale because you don't know 50 years from now, much less 100 years from now, what the real effects can be. This is uncertainty, which is the, 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 the essential ingredient in these models. You can't define what the uncertainty will be because it's too long a period. So, so it's hard to say that any economic model would ever make it seem worthwhile to do anything on a massive scale. Mm-hmm. 
so so then what, right? And so that led to a lot of pessimism. But the the one uh, economist stood up and said, if you if you took the best models we have now and went back to 1905 and said, okay, we're going to apply these these models uh, to uh, what we should do in terms of electrifying the country mm. and in terms of trying to stimulate a, a real sustainable automobile industry. And if you did that in 1905, if you tried to apply them, they would have essentially said, it's impossible. It's <laughs> impossible to subsidize an automobile industry and know you're going to succeed. And it's impossible to say that uh, the money it would cost to electrify the United States would be worth it. So don't do it because we can't tell you it's worth doing. Right. And look what happened. You know, by 1950, most of the country was electrified and there was automobiles everywhere. So uh, there's a little bit of levity to say that at some point he was saying, you know, you sort of got to throw out the economic models and start, just start doing things. That's really good stuff, Mark. Thanks a lot. Sure. In the coming weeks on the podcast, you'll hear some of the other interviews I did from the conference about subjects ranging from altruism to baseball statistics to spiders. And the February 15th through 21st episodes of the Daily Cyan podcast, 60 Second Science, are based on sessions at the AAAS conference and on the Night Science Journalism Fellowship Symposium on the Future of Science Writing. They're all on the podcast page, www.siam.com slash podcast, and over at iTunes. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review story one, Bat Species Was Deaf. Story 2, Frog Species Was Tiny. Story 3, Guy Follows Cars, GPS Instructions onto Railroad Tracks. Story 4, Altruism and War Co-Evolved. Time's Up Story 1 is true. What's now the oldest known bat species probably couldn't navigate by echolocation the way modern bats do. The new oldest bat fossil was described in last week's issue of the journal Nature. So it looks like bats first took to the air, then evolved the ability to hear their way around. Story four is true. Computer models show that altruism couldn't evolve without war also becoming entrenched and vice versa. That's according to research published by Jung Q. Choi and Samuel Bowles last fall in the journal Science. Bowles discussed the research at the AAAS conference last week where I learned about it. I interviewed him about it and will play that interview on an upcoming podcast. Story three is true. Last month, a visitor to the New York metropolitan area trusted his GPS unit when it told him to make a right turn that put him onto railroad tracks just north of New York City. He fled on foot in time to escape the total destruction of his car by a Metro North commuter train. That's according to the Westchester Journal News. A spokesman for Gammon, the largest GPS seller in North America, wisely noted that, quote, GPS is no substitute for common sense, end quote. Uh, all of which means that story two about the tiny frog is totally bogus. But what is true is that researchers recently found the fossil remains of a frog that was probably about 16 inches across and weighed 10 pounds, making it probably the biggest frog that ever lived. The find was announced in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The fossil was found in Madagascar, but appears closely related to other frog species that were found in South America. So it's also evidence for a long-lost bridge between those land masses. You can check out illustrations of the frog in the photo gallery at Siam.com. Scientists have dubbed the fossil Beelzebufo Ampinga, which translates to Armored Frog from Hell. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. You can write to us at podcast at Siam.com and check out numerous features at Siam.com, including slideshows, the hot topics, and the many, many, many fascinating comments left by your fellow readers and listeners. 
that you can add to. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.